Welcome everyone to the Changemakers podcast brought to you by SAP Services and Support. I'm your host, Robin Prince. And with me today, I have John Robinson, who has a theory to, in his words, unlock the future of manufacturing through revolution, not evolution. John is a strategic client advisor in SAP's Digital Supply Chain Center of Excellence, and his primary focus is on manufacturing and industry 4.0. Prior to joining SAP, John spent 30 years of his career in manufacturing with roles at various global companies, which has provided him with a wide skill set and experience that enables him to discuss topics like strategy, IT, OT, operational excellence, and of course, our topic today, the Quill Room Principle. So before we get into what exactly that means, um, we'll go through some questions with John and he'll explain a little bit about how he came to come to this principle of the quorum theory. So we will jump right into it. John, thank you so much for being here with us. And uh, I'm very excited to talk about this topic with you because it truly is, it's a revolutionary topic and we're very much interested in learning more. So we'll get started with how have manufacturers typically been working over the last 30 years and why do they need to make a change in your opinion? Yeah, thanks, Robin. Well, as you mentioned in the introduction, I spent 30 years in manufacturing. I started in manufacturing, so I'm not an IT or an engineer by background or a management consultant by background, I was actually as a marketing executive. Uh, but I was involved in things like ERP implementations back then. Uh, we also supplied GE back in the day in, in the late 1990s. So everything was about uh, Six Sigma and black belts and continuous improvement, et cetera. Uh, so I, I started in manufacturing and then moved into manufacturing IT, but at the shop floor level uh, with PLCs, SCADA, MES systems in the actual manufacturing shop floor in factories. Um, and then from there, I, I moved to work for a MES software vendor, Wonderware, who were partnering with SAP at the time around a concept called Perfect Plant. Uh, so I started to bridge the gap between the factories and the business and supply systems, uh, supply chain ERP systems. Um, then I spent six years after Wonderware with Atos, who were a global IT partner, SAP partner again, global head of MES, and, and more laterally involved in their Industry 4 team globally. And then I spent two years at EY just before joining SAP uh, in an advisory role Again, working with things like Procter & Gamble's IWS, which is the Toyota production system equivalent for consumer products industries. And that particular quirky career path is very strange, I think, in, in you know, when I look at my LinkedIn contacts uh, and I speak to colleagues at SAP or my former colleagues at EY, to get to the very top of those professions, you usually have to be in those organizations or at least in the, those sectors for a very long time, you know, 10, 15, 20 years to get to the, the absolute peak which is a good thing, but it also gives you a relatively narrow view of the world. And I think the thing, the reason I came up with the quorum principle and I, the problem with the status quo that I see, I can see it because I've been around the circle. I've seen it from the 360 degree view. And essentially the status quo that I have an issue with at the moment is that if you look at all the global manufacturers I've worked with over that 30 year career period, they've all done four things that have been aimed at performance improvement to improve their businesses. So the first thing they've all done is strategy work, the things they do with the McKinsey's, the BCG's, Bain's, you know, big consulting firms, which are largely around things like mergers and acquisitions, divestments, uh, which products to bring to market, which markets to serve, how to organize a global supply chain. So not really technology focused, more you know, business strategic and strategy aimed at growth. The second thing all manufacturers have done is introduce operational excellence programs uh, and methodologies like lean, Toyota production system, ways of working, again, and that's aimed at driving out waste. 
uh, and improving performance of the business using tools and techniques like autonomous maintenance, focused improvement, those types of things. The third thing they've all done is invest heavily in their IT systems, which is obviously SAP's traditional cash cow business. Uh, we, we focus on the CIO and IT, and it's a largely an IT-centric uh, decision around ERP and responsibility for the CIO. Again, aimed at improving the overall performance of the business by linking together the business systems in a more holistic, smoother way. And then the fourth thing they've all done is invest heavily in their operational technologies, which are the systems that they use inside the factories to manufacture. So again, if it's a car manufacturing firm or food and beverage firm, these are the packaging machines or the production lines, the assembly lines, and that's operational technology. But that's not usually the CIO's decision. That's engineers, process, chemical, mechanical, electrical engineers. They have control over the budgets and the decision-making. And every CXO I've spoken to over the years will tell you that those four big strategic investments have definitely improved business performance. They are better performing than they were before the investment. But what they will also tell you is that none of the four have actually delivered fully on their promise. At the outset, the business case, the performance improvement they thought they would achieve from all four investments has fallen a little bit short of expectation. Right. When you look at the question, why? Why is that the case? Then again, inside an organization, you have essentially four groups of silos or functions, the, the strategy people at the board level who, who work to define the strategy that cascades into the business. And then IT and engineering are trying to provide solutions, operational excellence, the actual plant directors and operations inside manufacturing are trying to apply those techniques, operational excellence techniques to improve performance, but they need data and information and solutions. So they look internally in two directions, one to IT and one to engineering. And in my experience, IT and engineering don't collaborate particularly well inside a, a client. They're from two different domains. The backgrounds are different. The, the vendors they deal with is, is quite different. So that's the internal problem. And then when you look at the external supplier ecosystem, it's a mirror image of the same problem. So people who are focused on consulting and who are very, very good at consulting, again, the McKinsey, BCG, Bain, Kearney type people, and then Accenture and others have consulting capability. They're largely aimed at the board in an advisory capacity. And then in the IT ecosystem where SAP sits along with our competition like Oracle and Salesforce and various others, and then our system integration partners, Capgemini, Accenture, Deloitte, there's a whole ecosystem who are largely focused on the CIO and chasing IT budget and IT spend. But then inside the four walls of a factory in the OT, it's a very different ecosystem. So people and SAP has a role to play, absolutely. But there are bigger players in there like Siemens and Schneider Electric, um, Rockwell, GE. And then you have the OEMs in there as well, the equipment manufacturers like Tetra Pak and Crohn's and, and many, many others who provide those packaging lines and equipment. So there's a whole ecosystem around OT. And then operational excellence is a specialism in its own right. Again, P&G's IWS, for instance, or AB InBev's Voyager VPO. The Toyota production system, there are entire catalogs of domain knowledge that you have to understand to do those things. The external supplier ecosystem is a mirror image of the client's own problem. You have four areas of expertise, and they're not quite aligned or working holistically and together. Right. The final thing that's happened in the last five, six years, everything I've talked about so far is industry three. This problem, this situation has been around for 20 plus years. In the last five, six years, there's been a lot of hype around Industry 4 and disruptive technology like IoT, AI, machine learning, augmented reality. But it's, to quote McKinsey, it's in pilot purgatory. Manufacturers mm -hmm. can't get out of doing interesting POCs in a way that really impacts the bottom line. And the final problem with the status quo 
And again, the question, well, why? Why, why is this not scaling across organizations? My argument is, well, nothing's changed. The business right. model of the last 30 years is still the same as we've been doing for 30 years. Consultants sell to the board. IT vendors sell to the CIO. Engineering and automation companies sell to engineers. And, and operational excellence is a consulting advisory specialism. And all Industry 4 has done is just provide more vendors, more technologies, more ways to improve value. And manufacturers are almost in uh, paralysis in terms of knowing where to begin and how to bring all of this together. So that is a, probably a bit longer explanation of the problem with the quo. But I, I think it's important. It sets the context for everything else. If, if you don't Absolutely. really see the problem with the status quo, then there's no point discussing the quorum principle or anything else unless you hold that mirror up to a manufacturer and say, do you recognize this? Is, is this your organization? And it's at that point when I talk to manufacturers about this, it's almost like the, the light bulb moment of actually you've just described my business. That's exactly right. what we've done. That's exactly the position we're in. And then the question comes, ah, so there's the problem, but what do we do about it? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That that's a perfect way to set the stage for what comes next and what, how to solve that problem. So speaking generally, a quorum is the minimum number of members of a deliberative assembly necessary to conduct the business of that group. So what is the quorum principle that you've created as it relates to manufacturing? Yeah, well, it's funny you've actually uh, looked up the definition of quorum. I, I did. <laughs> I, I, uh, not many people do, actually. I think you're the first one that's actually uh, checked into the definition of it. Um, I, I chose that word, and it, it is normally used in sort of political or town hall yeah. meeting, you know, voting right sort of thing. But the, the essence of what it means is the reason I chose that word. From a manufacturer's perspective, if you think of all the stakeholders, all the suppliers that a typical manufacturer deals with to support their business activities, there are many. And if I, I have a diagram I use when I'm talking to clients about this, like a layer cake, and there are probably 15 layers of capability on there, like management consultants, enterprise application vendor, hyperscaler, system integrator, OEM equipment provider, historian, MES, PLC, you know, you could go down all the layers of supplier. And again, if you put the logos and ask the manufacturers, who is your PLC vendor? Who is your MES provider? Who's your ERP provider? And then put the logos down the side, you would find, again, just as an example, McKinsey, SAP, Accenture, Siemens, Wonderware, GE, OS, uh, Aspen Tech, OSI, Tetra Pak, Crohn's, Ocme. The list is endless of suppliers and they're all important suppliers. And obviously, Microsoft with hyperscale, AWS, Google. And my argument to manufacturers is, in reality, if we're all being honest, there is no single vendor that can deliver performance improvement across the board. Right. And again, I know it's one of your topics that we're going to discuss later, but if you do take sustainability as a topic, you know, McKinsey can't deliver sustainability, SAP can't, Siemens can't, Microsoft can't, Tetra Pak can't, no one part of the supplier ecosystem can deliver sustainability. It actually requires right. a combination because the data is in the machines, it's in the PLCs, it's in the historians, it's in the ERP systems. You, you have to pull the data, you have to know what to do with it. You have to make business decisions and, and financial decisions. And, and again, as a simple rule of thumb, financial information is not in the manufacturing systems in a factory. They have the data in terms of quantities of how much electricity, how much water and utilities are you using. They don't have the value that's usually in the ERP and the business system. So mm -hmm. you have to pull the data together. The quorum principle is starting point. The question the manufacturer asks themselves is, so of all my suppliers, the ones I've just described, 
Which five are the biggest ones that impact our bottom line the most in terms of the most influential ones? The Pareto principle, principle mm-hmm. the 20 rule. So you could look at all your suppliers and just as an example, you could say, well, it's our management consultants. It's our enterprise application software because it runs our business. It's our hyperscaler of choice. It's our global automation vendor and it's our global IT system integration partner. And again, just as an example, I use a a combination lock as a visualization graphic when I'm talking to clients because the the combination locks where you dial in the five dials to get the the one (laughs) dial, that's the graphic I use and you dial in, but the logo. So you could say, well, it's McKinsey, SAP, Accenture, Siemens, and Microsoft. They are our five biggest strategic suppliers. And the quorum principle is basically those five together with the manufacturer have the potential to unlock the potential you know, the value that a manufacturer has. But it only works if the manufacturer brings those five key suppliers into the boardroom together at the same time and mandates that moving forward, it's their collective responsibility to work with the manufacturer to help the manufacturer achieve their objectives. It's really kind of looking inside each of those almost separate ecosystems that you mentioned earlier and Mm -hmm. bringing it to the top so that all of those ecosystems are working now together versus in multiple silos so that they're all communicating to unlock the potential that they really haven't tapped into quite yet. So Um, how do you bring that from the top down to implement that? Right. Um, In terms of how to start the quorum. Yes. Yes. For that quorum to work, it will only work if the manufacturer brings those five big suppliers into the boardroom at the same time and mandates that moving forward, they will work together in collaboration to help the manufacturer achieve the manufacturer's objectives. Because in the role of a management consultant, an enterprise application provider, a system integrator, an automation vendor, and a hyperscaler, there's actually no competition. There's no reason why they couldn't work together in in that dynamic and work with the manufacturer to bring their key value. And one of the The main reasons I argue this is the quote that was attributed to Aristotle, which I, again, I'm doing my research. I'm not quite sure (laughs) it's there, but I'm going to, you know, that's just detail. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So however much value McKinsey have, which is enormous, or SAP, or Microsoft, or Siemens, any any one of the, the companies I'm talking about has enormous value to bring to a manufacturing company, but the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. The value of SAP plus Microsoft plus Siemens plus McKinsey plus Accenture together working for a manufacturer in that core competence is is far more powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think in that respect, you know, again, if you compare that way of working to the historic way of working, which where projects have taken longer than the manufacturer expected, they cost more than the manufacturer expected, and they didn't deliver the value that the manufacturer expected. The, again, the old way of working to my view, isn't fit for purpose. This way of working has its challenges. Absolutely. Uh, There are some pretty big egos in the room. (laughs) Five uh, logos assembled around a table. But I absolutely passionately believe that it's a better way of working if we can find a way to make it work. Sure. So then that does lead me into my next question. How does one apply the quorum principle and how do they benefit from that? I mean, you've obviously touched on a, a ton of benefits and unlocking the full potential that they could have with bringing all of those players into the same room. But how how is it applied really at the at the base level? Well, again, as I'm speaking to you now, there is no playbook defined for this yet. It is a concept theory and it's certainly gaining mm-hmm. enormous traction with manufacturers and partners alike. 
So we're getting there in terms of doing that. But the basic principles, if you like, the guidelines from my perspective and, and a point of view on this. The first thing is absolutely no way can this be done from the outside, from the ecosystem. You know, we as SAP, Microsoft, Accent, no one vendor is big enough to convince the others to do this and change the business model. It won't work. Right, um, of course. So the first thing is it has to be a mandate from the manufacturer themselves. And the second thing to follow hot on the heels of that point is it also can't be mandated from a departmental or a siloed level within the manufacturer. So the CIO probably couldn't pull it off because engineering might resist, engineering might not pull it off because, uh, so again, for the same right. principle, it has to be a board level decision. And it has to be a board level decision because to bring those big suppliers, to bring a Siemens or an SAP or, or any of the logos that I, I keep mentioning into a boardroom, it has to be a CXO level decision to do that. Otherwise they sure. won't pay attention. And even beyond that, I often say to manufacturers, a single manufacturer isn't big enough to mandate. The, the Unilever or Nestle or Heineken are, are not big enough on their own to change the ecosystem. Right. Right. So what I'm actually trying to do when I'm speaking to clients now is to almost form a coalition of the willing in manufacturing <laughs> to get enough of them together to, to mandate and say, look, we, we want to change the business model. This business model, the, the way we've worked doesn't work for sure. us. You, sure. you know, we're asking you as our suppliers to change, you know, to buy into this and change the way that we're working. So I think the first thing in terms of getting it to work is, is mandate, first and foremost. The second key point is the manufacturer almost has to not worry about the supplier ecosystem quorum first. They mm -hmm. just forget the externals. I think that most manufacturers need to sort out their own internal quorum first and actually break <laughs> down their own silos between IT and the CIO and, and engineering and operations and, and finance. You know, So because everybody is a... Uh, each business area or line of business inside a manufacturer have, are driven by their KPIs. They have results to hit. Right. And sometimes they can be counterproductive towards each other. So again, and, and as I mentioned earlier, slightly in competition sometimes to provide the business and, and lay claim to performance improvement. Second after the mandate is to get buy-in from the manufacturer's own department heads and, and silos and break down their own internal silos first and get everyone onto the same page internally then to start tackling the external ecosystem. And again, the way I'm proposing that that happens at the moment is, again, I think it would be a disaster to bring all five into the boardroom on day one. <laughs> it just wouldn't work. So I think it's a case of work with you know, SAP and, and McKinsey or BCG or Bain or, or one of those companies to essentially set up the framework and the guidelines and the, the playbook internally. And then as part of that process, you, you would then also introduce vendor number three, vendor number four, vendor number five, one by one, bring them in individually, brief them, have the CXO level conversations to get buy-in or not from the vendor and build up towards the quorum and, and again, form that consensus. And then once you have that in place, you have the mandate, you have your own internal silos broken down. You've brought in the uh, suppliers one by one. Everybody's on the same page. Then you can actually start and execute the core and principle in terms of, right, so what is the direction? Where are we going? What are we trying to do? And it's a far more collaborative way of working moving forward than, again, the, the one that we have at the moment. Right. And it, I mean, it, it of course sounds like a big overhaul, but any revolution or anything that's worth the change is going to take a lot of effort and time and and the right players in the mix to make sure that it happens in the way that it should. So this is certainly an interesting and, and 
wonderful concept. I mean, it makes a ton of sense. There's no mystery behind it. It's almost as if it should have been, that's how the last 30 years have should have been running, but revolutions happen for a reason. And I think, John, this is, this is incredible. My last question for you, and, and of course, this is a very important topic among businesses, among just everyone all over the world. How can adopting the Quolum principle help us to also achieve sustainability goals around the world in, in manufacturing and, and possibly other industries? Well, again, in my experience, you know, literally walking factory floors and having these conversations and looking at as is and performance and business processes, you know, a lot, a lot of the vision and the hype that we see out there with regard to industry four and the new technologies and the promise that they hold is true. I, I I am an advocate of Industry 4 and progress. I, I think it can be done. But again, in, in the slides I talk to clients about specifically on sustainability issues, one of the big values of the quorum principle as a new way of working is there is so much waste and so much opportunity left without any new technology. Just the technologies that manufacturers already have, their Industry 3 investments, for want of a better description. There is so much, much waste in there that you can squeeze out bottom line profitability without any new technologies. And then you earn the right and, and move on to adopt the new technologies to take performance even higher. But obviously, whilst most manufacturers at the end of the day would look at it from a financial performance perspective, right. primarily, mm-hmm. and by default, if you are consuming less raw material, you're producing less waste, you're producing less emissions because you are more efficient overall. The, the, you know, the process of manufacturing and, and collaborating with your ecosystem of suppliers means that projects come to market quicker. The design of the process is more efficient. It's more effective. It, by default, sustainability improvement is a byproduct of the way of working. And again, right. sustainability in most of the presentations that I see and hear, not just from SAP colleagues, but externally in, in the, the articles I read, seem to give the impression that sustainability is product or a solution or um, something that you do. And from mm-hmm. my point of view, it's not. It's not a thing. Sustainability is a byproduct of the way that you do other things. Absolutely. So, um, you know, the way that you consume and, and, and all those other things. So you don't have to focus on sustainability proactively looking at it. You focus on the things that cause emissions or cause waste, and then sustainability will take care of itself. Right. And and in that respect, the quorum principle, the idea of collaborating in such a way. And I think, again, another, hopefully it will resonate with the audience when you think of it in this way. 12 months ago, at the start of the COVID-19 crisis, there was obviously a huge focus on ventilators. And in the UK, we had something called the Ventilator Challenge, which was about people who don't normally make ventilators adapting their production, like Airbus, Rolls-Royce, other manufacturers, repurposing manufacturing to solve a crisis. And when you lift the bonnet on the Ventilator Challenge, it was the core and principle, because it was people coming together for the purpose of a common goal. We, we exactly. have to solve something that is mutually beneficial for all of us to try and figure out how to solve this. And also SAP's work with the global vaccine effort, yeah, uh, the vaccine yeah. hubs that we've created. Same principle. It's necessity. It's born out of necessity. And from right. my point of view, the global sustainability problem that we have with the planet and the, the report from the, the UN, I think it was just last week, you know, we're now on code red. Mm. It, it's, to me, it's the same thing. We, we've got a common issue here, a common object yes. that we collectively need to try and figure out. 
and, and therein is the core and principle. It's a collective effort now to try and figure out how we can be more efficient and more effective. Right. And then the final thing I would say in terms of this, in terms of the barrier and the opportunity, the biggest barrier to the core and principle being adopted is not that technically it doesn't make sense or intuitively it doesn't look like the right thing to do. I think most people see that. It's largely a commercial problem in that the account owners, the sales community, the partners who manage a particular account are very wary of sharing information with other companies, especially people though they perceive as competitors, which is understandable, but even companies who are, you know, inverted commas partners, they're very reluctant to share information because everybody's quite protective of what they know and and who they know. And and so there's just a natural resistance to doing that because we're commercially driven to sell. And again, where I've seen the core and principle adopted, albeit on a small scale, actually, it turns out to be a better win-win, even for the salespeople, mm-hmm. because they actually sell more quicker, because it's there's less of a sales process and a competitive right. environment to go through. So actually, when you're working in a true collaboration like that, the answer sort, sorts itself out, and it sorts it out pretty quickly. So it's actually you know more interesting commercial model. And the, the key to success, I think, of all of this, and this is where it really does get very interesting for the future for me personally as well. Over the last 11, 12 months, when working with colleagues and, and talking to various people about this, I've, lots of ideas have been put forward in terms of, oh, have you thought about this concept? Have you heard of that idea? And there are some great ideas out there and concepts that I've very quickly, let, you know, building up my own knowledge of things like system design and system thinking and theory, okay. which again, by all means, if people want to go and Google them and YouTube and, and find mm-hmm. the videos on, on them. Theory U in particular, the U, obviously we all know what a U looks like. It's the journey sure. that a person, a human being goes on from the top left of the U in terms of their current way of thinking, the perception of the world, how they think about commercials and competition and just the way of working and operating. And going on a journey in the bottom of the U is the point of realization where you open your mind to actually, I can work a different way. There is a different way of doing things. And then by the mm-hmm. time you've completed the journey to the top of the U at the other side, you have a completely different mindset to adopting yeah. new ideas and, and it just broadens the, the perception. So the biggest contributor to the core and principle working is not a commercial one. It's not a technical one. It's a change management. It's, it's whether people, humans, are prepared to go on a journey of the discovery. I know it sounds a bit a uh, mindset shift, really, and, um, an overhaul yeah. of their own mindset. Exactly. Yeah, it's just mm-hmm. changing the mindset and and our own operating model. Sure. You know, we're all familiar with ex- external business models, operating models, but you've got to change your own operating model in your right. mind to, to think in a different way. And I think then it it has a chance. Yeah, and that can almost be one of the hardest parts to any any type of change is the mindset that everyone has had for the last. 30 plus years on, on any particular area, but it has to start somewhere. So yeah, John, I, I'm really looking forward to see, to seeing how this develops over the next X amount of months. And, and this is a truly an incredible topic. And I think you are certainly onto something big. So thank you for your time and for coming on here to explain to our audience exactly what it is. And we want the audience to go and learn more as well. I know you have some articles out there. You've done some webinars, probably other podcasts. So we'll put all of those resources out there for our audience to go and do their own research. And we'll also, to get in touch with you, we'll add some personal information to the podcast episode so that we can continue to spread the message and 
drive the qualm theory or the qualm principle forward. So thank you so much, John, for being here. And it, it truly is a, a pleasure. And I think we'll probably be seeing much more of you and hearing much more of this principle moving forward. Thank you very much, Robin. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, yes, let's uh, hope it goes somewhere <laughs> in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Take care.